Many years ago, I uh, was really struck by, and it has become one of my favorite movies. It came out a number of years ago. Maybe you remember hearing about it. It's called A Beautiful Mind. And it uh, starred Russell Crowe, who played uh, a real person, a real professor uh, named John Nash, an economics professor at Princeton University. And Dr. Nash suffered from uh, paranoid schizophrenia. And the first half of the movie sort of walks through how this, this, this trouble, this difficulty, this very real struggle uh, just sent his life spiraling downward and downward and downward. And the turning point of the movie came when he was with his child. Uh, his wife was uh, out running errands and he was uh, giving his child a bath. And it was a moment when he just began to lose touch with what was actually happening around him and, and before him. And uh, his wife comes home and he's giving the child a bath and the water is rising and it's a pretty dramatic moment and the wife begins to realize, oh no, she understands what's going on and she breaks through the door and just in the nick of time, she begins to speak. And he, for the first time, really begins to listen to a voice outside of his own. And he begins to change. Because a committed friend, a committed wife, spoke a constructive word. She appealed to her husband. A very urgent appeal. This committed friend speaking a constructive word and this humble man listening and taking that word to heart. It's always struck me that people begin to change when they listen. They stop speaking and they begin to listen to a perspective outside of themselves that begins to open up doors and helps them understand what is real. This evening's text is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And you know the context, I trust, for 11 chapters, the Apostle Paul has been, first of all, setting forth God's righteous judgment against the human condition. And then in chapters 4 through 8, he begins to unpack God's gracious salvation in Christ. And then in verses, chapters 9, 10, and 11, he speaks of how God is bringing His people together, unifying both Jew and Gentile into one body. And then we come to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and everything pivots on these two verses because the remainder of the letter is all about so what? Now what? How do we live? How do we begin to change? One of my favorite conclusions in the movie is John Nash is getting better and he's beginning to live a full life because he's listening to a word outside of his own 
and uh, he's nominated for the Nobel Prize. Uh, the representative from Nobel comes and, and says, uh, just outside of the classroom, when, when he is uh, uh, teaching a class and finishing up a class, and by now he's doing very, very well. And uh, the representative uh, says to John Nash as he stands outside the door, excuse me, are you Professor Nash? And humble John Nash turns to a student, a woman walking out of the classroom, and he says to her, is he real? And she says, he's real. And so they begin to have a conversation. Again, change happens when you begin to listen to a voice outside of your own. And the Apostle Paul, speaking for the Lord, issues this urgent appeal, and it's a text that calls us to humbly listen. Let me read the text for us. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the true will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this passage so packed with wonders and we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes in order that we might see and that we might hear and that we might love what we see and love what we hear so that we take it to heart and walk out a new obedience by the power of your Holy Spirit. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Apostle Paul, speaking authoritatively, but notice how he's coming alongside as a committed friend, speaking a constructive word, and I want us to take a look at that word in three parts. First of all, it's a word that tells you what to do. Secondly, it's a word that tells you how to do. And then finally, it's a word that tells you why to do. First of all, a word that tells you what to do. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In Paul's day, these words would have a very familiar ring to them. They understood the priesthood. They understood the temple. They understood the sacrifices that were offered. And so these are familiar words, but they come with a very surprising twist in several ways. First of all, this sacrifice is offered not to avert God's wrath as sacrifices were offered in the Old Testament, but to express our thanks for God's grace. The Old Testament anticipated all of this. The high priest entering the earthly temple and offering the animal sacrifice. But in the New Testament, there's fulfillment. Jesus is revealed as our high priest who enters the true heavenly temple and He offers the final sacrifice and He sits down with no more 
sacrifice to be offered. A bloody sacrifice, that is. Today, all that remains is us, for us to show our gratitude. It's that kind of sacrifice. Secondly, the second twist is this sacrifice is not offered as an animal put to death, but as a person raised to life. It's a living sacrifice. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, purpose clause, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, living sacrifice. A third twist. This sacrifice is offered not in place of yourself, but as your total self. Your bodies. Now this would be a shock for those in Paul's day, and maybe a shock to some in our day. Those who believe the body is like a prison from which the soul needs to escape. No, no. Or to those who believe that all a person needs to do is to give their heart to Jesus. No, says Paul, we are embodied souls. Soul and body can be distinguished, but they cannot be separated. The body mediates what the soul, the heart, initiates. The body expresses the heart. The body is the instrument by which our soul impacts the world around us, starting at home. So, God seeks the sacrifice of our total self, your eyes. What we look at expresses our worship, your ears. What you listen to expresses your worship, your tongue, what you say, and the tone in which you speak it expresses your worship, your hands, the art you create, the tasks you perform, the iPhone you scroll up and down expresses your worship. Your feet, from the moment you get out of bed and put your feet on your floor, your feet express your worship. The Apostle Peter speaks of the former days, our life before Christ, and he says, for the time that is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 says, what is the fruit that you are getting from that time, from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. 
And so now Paul is saying, do not present the members of your body. He actually says this in Romans chapter 6. Do not present the various members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness. That's the third twist. But there's a fourth and final. This sacrifice is offered not in the earthly temple, but in every part of your world. Your home. How you relate to your spouse, your child, your roommate, your next door neighbor. That's where we live as a living sacrifice. Your office. How you do your job and how you treat your coworkers. That's where you express a living sacrifice. Maybe you're a young person. At school, and maybe it gets really hard in high school, and then you go off to college and it gets really challenging, because that's exactly the place where you and I are called to live out a living sacrifice. Or even the playground, how you exercise and where you compete. That's the place where it's all worked out into the details of life right then and there where life actually happens in the details. And Paul says this sacrifice, did you notice, is holy, that is set apart and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. The word spiritual translates a Greek term that literally is the word from which we get the word logical. Your logikos, worship. It's the only reasonable response to make. It's so logical, reasonable. It only makes sense. We were created for Him and recreated by the Spirit for Him. So it only makes sense that we offer our heart, soul, mind, and strength in daily devotion to God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This word tells you what to do. But this word also tells you how to do. Notice what the text says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now just a word of orientation here. In Paul's day, the Jews viewed history in two stages. There was on the one hand this present age, and then on the other hand coming after the age to come. In this present age, there is a gravity, a power, a rule that is pulling everything down into the grave, leading to death. Sin reigns through death in this present age. Kids, think of the power of the ring. The gravity that pulls in. It's a gravity unto death. But then there's the age to come. There's upward gravity of grace that leads unto life. That's how they saw history. 
This present age followed by the age to come. But in the coming of Jesus, everything changes. An unexpected change. What did Jesus do for you? In His birth, He entered into this present age. And you follow the story. And on Good Friday, Jesus comes fully under the powers of this present age. Death for His people. But on Sunday, God raised Him to life. And He comes under the gravity of life indeed. And an indestructible life, the writer to the Hebrews tells us. But not as a private person, but as the man for others. For you, His people. United to the risen Lord Jesus Christ, you too have entered into this life of the age to come. That's what it means to be born again. To a living hope. To obtain an inheritance which is undefiled and unfading, reserved in heaven for you. That eternal life begins now. We live in Christ in the age to come. And yet we still live in this present age that is passing away. Is it like this at the great Lake Michigan? I haven't been out yet waist deep, but at least in the beaches of North Carolina, when you're three feet out, it's as though you can hear this, feel this current that is pulling you into shore. But there's also this current that is pulling you out. You're caught between the currents. You're caught between the ages. That's what it's like to live the Christian life. One current is pulling you into the shore of life, Holy Spirit. One current is pulling you out into the sea of death, the power of sin. And it's because of these two competing currents that the Apostle Paul gives two commands. Did you notice? Negatively on the one hand, do not be conformed to this world. That is to say, do not be conformed to the pattern of this present age, both in its character and in its conduct. All of us wake up and every day there are competing images and voices that are bidding for our hearts. And young people in high school and college especially, it is a blizzard, isn't it? There are so many images. There are so many voices bidding you to come and conform to the pattern of the age that is passing away. It's really, really hard. And we're praying for you. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. So these are words that are spoken in love to reach out and rescue. Do not let the world press you into its mold, into its way of believing, into its way of desiring, into its way of behaving, into its way of answering the big questions like, what is a person? What is a person's life really about? Do not let this age, this world, press you into its mold. 
Instead, positively, second command, other hand, be transformed. But transformed into what? Implicit in the text is transformed into the pattern of our Lord Jesus, both in His character and His context. There's a major clue in that Paul uses the same verb here, metamorpho. Does that sound familiar? From which we get the word metamorphosis, transformation. Be transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul uses this same verb in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord as in a mirror, are being changed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice the grammar here. This is really important. Be transformed. Did you notice, on the one hand, the verb is in the imperative mood? That is to say, we are commanded to do something. But on the other hand, the verb is in the passive voice. In other words, what is required of you must be done to you. But I love how Sinclair Ferguson poses the question, how can you do something that must be done to you? How can you do that? And Paul answers, verse 2, by the renewal of your mind. God does the transformation, but not without your participation. Something we must do in order that transformation might be done to us. And so we need to ask, and we need to answer a couple of questions. First of all, what is this renewal of the mind? Now I want you to notice carefully what the renewed mind is able to do. Did you notice what the text says? This is what the renewed mind is able to do. Testing and discerning what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The English Standard Version uses two English words, testing and discerning, to translate one Greek verb that's often, interestingly enough, used in connection with gold. On the one hand, the verb conveys the work of inspecting gold, testing to know whether it is genuine. But on the other hand, the verb conveys the work of discerning gold. That is to say, of approving gold because you know it's genuine and therefore very valuable. This is what the renewed mind is able to do. So, the beauty of a renewed mind is twofold. Not only is it able to sift through and spot God's will as pure gold... The renewed mind is also able to discern and approve, to treasure, to really love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength God's will as pure gold. Maybe another metaphor might be helpful. Imagine 
And this was one of Jonathan Edwards' favorite metaphors. Imagine there's a man or a woman who does not have the sense of taste. That man or woman can know on the basis of a reliable testimony or reading a book in a library that honey is sweet. But if that man or woman were given a taste, and they took a little bit of honey, they would know the same thing. But they would know it in a much different way. They would know it not by the power of logic, but by the power of a first-hand personal taste. As John Piper likes to put it. That's the first question. What about the second? How grows this renewal of the mind? How grows it? Well, recall what I said earlier. God does the transformation. Jesus prays, John chapter 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to renew the mind of the child of God. Sinclair Ferguson, pastor, professor, writer, puts it wonderfully well. Notice what he says. The result of the Spirit working with the Word of God to illumine and transform our thinking is the development of a godly instinct a godly instinct, a taste that operates in sometimes surprising ways. The revelation of Scripture becomes in a well-taught, spirit-illumined believer so much a part of his or her mindset that the will of God frequently seems to become instinctively and even immediately clear just as whether a piece of music is well or badly played is immediately obvious to a well-disciplined musician. It's a taste, it's an instinct that the Holy Spirit gives. And recall also, God does the transformation, but not without your participation. Something we must do in order that transformation might be done to us. What is that? We listen to the Word. We wake up in the morning and we set aside time and we read the Word of God. And we meditate upon it. And notice, we must slow down. People do not change by going fast. And our culture wants to make us go fast. And that doesn't lead to change. And also, we must focus on less. Less is more. You will not change by multitasking. Change requires, as one of my professors like to put it, it requires monotasking. Laser beam focus. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan pastor and theologian, wrote, they usually thrive best who meditate 
most. They take something short, a phrase, a paragraph, and like a tea bag steeping in the hot water, they let it sit and they meditate on the Word of God. And as they do, the Holy Spirit makes the Word of God taste really good. Are you conformed to this world, for example, by returning evil for evil? I remember, I remember counseling a young man many years ago who really struggled. He found himself always returning evil for evil. And we took 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, and we just lived there. When Jesus was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. And as He slowed down, and as the Spirit took this, this word of Jesus, it became lovely to Him, and He wanted to grow into the image of this Lord Jesus Christ. I love that we're memorizing Psalm 139, verse 10, has been so dear to me. I've remembered it many a night, early morning, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., when I was really struggling to sleep because of a particular struggle. I've been deep sea fishing one time in my life, and that was with my dad, and we got offshore, continental shelf, and I could not see land. And I felt like I was dwelling in the remotest part of the sea. I was disoriented. I didn't know what was north, south, east, west. But Psalm 139 was steeping in my heart. I had committed it to memory. And early in those wakeful hours, I was able to hold fast because I knew He was holding fast to me. Even if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will hold me and your right hand will lead me. Slow down. Focus on less. And the Spirit renews our mind. Not formulaically. This is a dependent, vital, personal relationship. There's no recipe. We can't control this. The Spirit does as He pleases, but He ordinarily uses means like His Word. We'll close with this. We're learning here that it's a Word that not only tells us what to do, not only a Word that tells us how to do, but also a Word that tells you why to do. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. There's the motivation. Paul invites us to consider our misery apart from God. He's about to show us the diamond, but first he lays out the black cloth so that we can see the brilliant diamond. Consider our misery apart from Christ. Romans chapter 1, Although we knew God, we did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following 
the evil spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, following the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. We were children of wrath by nature. But God was rich in mercy. And He lays on the black cloth the brilliant diamonds of His mercy. In the Gospel, there's good news. On Friday, Jesus is condemned as if He were the guilty one for His people so that we might be righteous in Him. On Friday, Jesus was lost and forsaken by the Father in order that we might forever come into His family. On Friday, Jesus came under the powers of sin and death, the powers of this age. But on Sunday, He was raised to life in order that you and I might walk in newness of life, living sacrifice. On Friday, the body of Jesus was sown into the ground in weakness and shame in order that you and I, soul and body, might be raised in glory and power together with Him. And all of this depends not on our effort, but on God's mercy. His purpose is to make known the riches of His glory to us, the objects of His mercy. So, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's pray. We thank You that You have made us to be the objects of Your mercy. And we thank You for giving us Your Word that reveals who You are and what You do in Jesus. And we pray that You would take this Word and that Your Holy Spirit working together with it would transform us into the likeness of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that you're already doing it. You are making us to be a beautiful, fruitful tree that bears its fruit in its season, even when the heat comes, as we drink from Jesus. And yet we confess there are, there are thorns, as it were, still on the tree that are dying away and we ask that you would put those to death and raise to life in their place more and more fruit of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we lift up our prayer and our thanksgiving in his name. Amen. This evening we have the opportunity to